Well, dear listeners, if only you could see this view sitting up the top of uh, a mountain range in uh, Mullumbimby, and I'm with Dr. Elizabeth Elliott uh, in her beautiful home here. She is a public banking reformer, a farmer, and a doctor. So, uh, Liz, great to have you on the show. As we've got our feet up, we've got cups of tea, and uh, we're doing what Licorice we love tea. most, and that is uh, talk about the the ways of the world. And uh, this weekend, of course, we've just had the Australian federal election, and you've been heavily involved with uh, the local Greens party. Um, how did the the cookie crumble for you up here? Well, we did have quite a significant swing to the Greens. I think it was uh, maybe 12% in the end, which is pretty good. So we ended up with about, I think, 23% of the vote. Uh, the Labor Party just pulled ahead of us. That's the sitting member. She's a sort of a good party girl from for the last 14 years. Um, and Justine Elliott, and then the Nationals, uh, who I call the sellout party, who I'd love to deal with them directly as custodians of the country, but unfortunately they've sold out to the Liberals. And the Nationals had a nice, good-looking lad who got about 40-something percent. So, yeah, I guess Labor's back in, and the Greens should be proud of a really good grassroots campaign in which we made over eight or 10,000 personal conversations with people, maybe more in an electorate of 110,000. Mm. The demographics uh, must be changing this seat, are they? A lot of young um, groovers in the neighbourhood. <laughs> uh, I suppose this area always has had that, but there must be a very interesting tension between the, the creatives and the, the old school farming communities. Well, I wish that was how you were right. I would like to think that the old school farmers, of course, only represent 2% of our national GDP. They've been shrunk by our Woolworths, Coles friends to a shadow of their former self. And most of those farmers I have nothing but respect for. What we do have is a much larger part of the electorate is an elderly uh, displaced Victorians, actually, but also <laughs> local um, people who've come to move up here because it's a superb place in climate and geography, and we all adore our area. And um, so those a lot of elderly people who are fairly conservative, and they certainly don't want change because they've had a good run recently. And then you've got as you've got the creatives, as you put, who, are, who tend to colonise the second, the southern half of the electorate, and you know they tend to vote green. So down the south end of the electorate, I guess the the voting in some polls would be seventy percent green. Mm. Some polling. Okay, goes. so uh, yeah, we're all scratching our heads and wondering how this minority government is going to play <laughs> out. So, what do you think could be some of the policy implications for the conservatives who have? stuck by and by along the, the neoliberal agenda, how will they be forced to compromise? Oh, you might be at my side, my area of expertise, but I think people like Xenophon and some of the, uh, even Pauline Hanson, may go against the TPP, and uh, even though they tend to support Turnbull on a lot of his... Um, conservative things uh, against the unions, they may actually be quite a good force in terms of buying Australian and not um, succumbing to the corporate agenda as expressed in the TPP, which is 
such a dreadful thing. So that'd be good. And I think most of these smaller parties and, of course, the Labor Party will tend to support Gonski better. And I think anyone who touches Medicare is on notice now that the Australian people really care about it, uh, really needs some help uh, at the health system in a number of levels. So let's segue there because uh, back under the Labor government, Wayne Swan, um, I've had a few listeners contacting me saying, come on, Carl, uh, enough of this Georgia stuff. Tell us about public banking. So Liz Elliott has written passionately about that for a long time. And uh, when Wayne Swan was treasurer, there was uh, just a little balloon floated one day of turning Aussie Post into uh, uh, a public bank. And I wonder whether you ever heard of that. It was was quashed pretty quickly, but um, it was certainly something that had a few insiders uh, talking about how that would uh, generate more in, more income for Aussie Post and provide a useful service. Now the Commonwealth Bank is um, one of the big four. Well, forty uh, percent of the world's population live in countries where pub- the majority of banking's public. Certainly, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, many countries, Russia, China, the BRICS countries—they're all have all had or have ha- currently have. Um, public banking. So it's not an experiment. It's not a fringe idea. And it's practicable. You can set up a public bank in probably a couple of months, really. You only need a small million or two to get it cracking. It just, um, it's not, it's not airy fairy or out there stuff. It's completely practical, completely doable, and it completely works because every country that has public banking, from Hitler to, um, you know, pre-war Japan right through, has boomed whenever they have a public bank. So it's totally doable and it totally works. And, and, and the ruling class know that because they just love the fact that they can make money out of thin air and then ask everyone to work their little socks off for the next 40 years to pay them back. So everyone knows it can be done. It is being done and we can do it. So Wayne was right as usual. Um, and uh, it's not, it's not uh, astrology. It's real science and it can be done easily. So what would be the best practices for a public bank to be established here in Australia in 2016? Well, well I think the main thing is you need a small amount of money um, to do interbank transfers because personally I would prefer the private system to stay intact but the pri- because I think private banks have a function in funding uh, enterprise and I think the public banker, however, should be the only one that really can create currency out of thin air. That is, they control the money supply. At the moment, as you, you listeners, clever listeners know, 95% of credit money is made out of thin air as a, a bank, as a computer ledger entry. And so most money is made out of thin air by the private banking system and there's no reason why the public bank can't take over that role and the private banks then get relegated to just handing on depositors' money to people who want to go into enterprise. So you do need a small amount of money to as a, a seed amount, but from there on you can um, pretty much, as I say, create money out of thin air but it has to be done responsibly by people who've looked at the total amount of money that's needed by the country and what its productive capacity is. So you can't capriciously do it. Uh, but as I say, wherever there's spare productive capacity, you can create money according to that need. 
So it's not very difficult, but it does require wisdom and disinterested and caring people who care about the environment and our kids' future, and that's what we seem to have a shortage of. So one of the biggest issues with the the social contract behind banking licences mm. and uh, the actual, the last guarantor, um, under a public banking system, would there be a sovereign guarantee for those deposits um, uh, placed w- with the bank? Why not? <laughs> As I say, if the country's got a productive capacity um, to honour the amount of money created, there's no reason why you can't honour depositors' deposits. At the moment, depositors, as you may know, are under the threat of bail-ins. If the um, derivatives bubble bursts again, as it will, then we're very likely uh, to have bail-ins, which means depositors' money will be taken off them because they're unsecured deposits, whereas people with uh, derivatives are considered the first in line to get their money. So mm, That is shocking, isn't it? So <laughs> development over the last couple of years that's come through, and uh, we saw it in the Greek... Uh, banking crisis. Cy- Cyprus was the big Cyprus, one. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Well, that was the sort of test run to see how much the public could get upset. But yeah, so what I'm saying is that at the moment deposits aren't really guaranteed. There is a small government guarantee. I think it's up to 200000 mm. But in fact, there isn't enough money to cover that available in the present system. So... Everyone knows that public banking's doable. Everyone who knows anything about banking knows that the private banks have uh, abrogated that right and they're using it for bad ends. And what do I mean by bad ends? I mean speculation and I mean ridiculous quantities of housing debt, usually for over-large houses to very rich people and often multiple houses for the same person. So we, what we really want, of course, is affordable housing, small business, organic farming. All of these can be supported by a bank that really cares about our future um, and is run wisely. Mm. Yes, well, uh, wouldn't that be nice if we had a banking system that actually lent money to people who were uh, engaged in uh, a creative enterprise and real employing economy. people, the real economy, instead of this fire sector of finance, insurance and real estate. That's right, because what we're getting is a, look, a, rent, a, a rentier economy where people are using money so that they can set up toll booths on the working people so that every time you use this road or you use this football club or hundreds of other examples this renting place you uh, you have to pay a large percentage of your money up to 40 or even more 60 percent to people who aren't making anything real or new or creative they're just taking money at every chance they can from people who actually work and uh, actual real capitalists, people who actually think of an idea and put it into practice and employ people, have to buy rent money at quite high rates. Mm. So There's all sorts of barriers, aren't there, yeah. to people doing business. And I just met someone on the way up here who had an amazing hand cream. And she was saying, look, it will cost over $50,000 for me to make my way through the regulative barriers here and get it ticked off in uh, through the health um, uh, bodies uh, so that I can commercialise this and, you know, Well, that's why people hate the Greens. People um, get confused between the excessive regulation of the small and the excessive 
uh, freedom of the large. They blame the Greens for the regulations when, in fact, it's a program that you know consistently supports big business over small. And we all know that small business are the main generators of um, employment, not to mention meaning and purpose and accountable practices within smaller communities. So we've got to support small business, I think, and um, we've got to stop this under-regulation of the large because it's not a level playing field. These guys are not paying their taxes, as everyone now knows, which is great. And they know, or they're not even um, they're, they're patenting, um, you know, inventions that government universities have created. They've got all sorts of ways and getting huge subsidies. I read once that the amount of money that the average US, sorry, the total amount of subsidies, indirect and direct, to big American capitalism is five times their profits. So you've got big business getting these ridiculous subsidies one way or another and tax breaks and poor small business doing it tough. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's a mystery, isn't it, how uh, we've been convinced this is the best way to run society. But uh, uh, the whole banking industry seems to, uh, you know, they've got these incredible bank fees that we all cop at the teller. I mean, tell people about just how we sit on a global scale when it comes to just some of these bare basics. Well... I'd rather not because I think the whole question of fees, quite frankly, Carl, is I'm looking at this hawk fluttering in in one place just near. It's so beautiful. The whole thing of bank fees is a very minor factor compared to the fact that they create money out of thin air and then they charge people interest, which often ends up being three times what the person was loaned in the first place. And they don't create the interest money. So here we are, I've got people paying bigger thy neighbour in a competitive way with everybody to get this extra two times. To me, more concrete, you get given $100 as a loan, you need to get $300 back to me over for 20 years to pay your loan. Where are you going to get the 200 from? Well, you're only going to do it by gouging the environment, competing with others to, to press them down, exploiting the workers, running a nasty sweatshop in the third world, going bankrupt, inflating the currency, all of which are crummy ways to run an economy. So basically, you can have all the bank fees you like and they might be 1%, they might be 5%. The real issue is that they make money out of thin air and then they want all this interest money back and they don't create the interest money. So everyone's playing this horrible competitive game which is driving us mad. Literally, people are lonely, sad, depressed, overworked, harried, not seeing their kids. All this stuff is everybody's going to work and their wives too, barely seeing the kids. I think the problem is much more fundamental, much more structural than the bank fees, which I suppose every bank needs a little fee, yeah. <laughs> they certainly need a, a, a some sort of return and, and that's one of the key issues is that uh, the rate of return they're asking, as you pointed out, is above the cost of production, especially when this is money created out of thin air that's only enabled because of the government guaranteed uh, contract. Another interesting connection is the fact that the whole thing about growth, as you know, yes, is that's where I was going. Mm. and. Um, because, you know, all these parties say we must have jobs and growth, you know, stop the boats and jobs and growth, um, because growth is a way of paying interest. And 
what's pushing this growth economy? People go, oh, it's greed or it's a filthy capitalist or something. It's not. It's a simple need to pay interest back more than was created. So if we're ever to get a steady state economy, if we're ever to get an organic world that, you know, is sustainable, if we're ever to have the sort of future we want for our kids and our world, we just have to get seize the banking system, which is a simple man-made construct, and make it work for people and not for profit. It can be done. It's not difficult. So how far away, realistically, are we from having a public bank here in Australia? Well, we could be a couple of weeks, uh, or we could wait and have a, a, a universal um, banking collapse with great hardship and possibly war and misery. Uh, the, the choice is ours. We just have to get smart and get on with it. It is not rocket science. It is. is there a movement online that people can look at? Yes. I'd highly recommend anything by Positive Money, which is a UK group, Positive Money, they're good. And also the wonderful writing of Ellen Brown. Um, She's an American lawyer who champions the public banking system. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of stuff going on. And I think awareness is is raising. This guy called Bill Mitchell in Australia. And I think, indeed, it's going to come because we're going to have a bank crash by the look of it. And we got to see how poor old Greece and other countries have been dragged over the coals because of bank misbehaviour. And it's possibly going to happen here too. Uh, You know, I think that these ideas about banking have to circulate because there's two points to it. One is we can make a better world. And secondly, it's not doom and gloom. It can be done. If 40% of your effort is going and your resources are going into paying off banking interest for the one percenters, surely we can immediately save 40% of our effort and resources. We can easily um, support good things rather than bad things like environmental repair and education we can do it and we can do it quickly. So that's a huge positive and, and, and you know, I know people get pretty distressed when they're activists thinking, nothing can be done. Well, it can be done and the public bank, it's not the whole answer but it's a good 40% of the answer. Nice answer. Well, let's wrap up then with the discussion on balanced budgets and are they really as important as we're led to believe? Uh, it's really dominating Australian federal politics and uh, the Libs said it was possible when they're in opposition, now they're in government. Uh, seems like minority government's going to be an even bigger challenge uh, for them to drive their agenda. But uh, uh, is it such a concern? Liz Elliott. Balanced budgets are a prime neoconservative, neoliberal fascist myth. There's no other way of saying it. It just is nonsense. I cannot believe the Labor Party, with their deep understanding and great intellects among them, are not exposing this and letting themselves be browbeaten by these so-called economic managers who have completely mishandled our economy, called the Liberals, who are, you know, as we know, corporate stooges. But... That being maybe, but what I'm saying is the Labor Party should know and does know and in fact in the past has championed public banking that it is doable and they also know you don't need a balanced budget. Balanced budgets are a myth. You can't balance a budget when vast amounts of money are being hived off to um, tax havens and to profit, you know, ridiculous profits and CEO salaries, stratospheric. You can't, you have to inject more money into the economy just to keep demand up. 
So you you cannot have a, a, a def you cannot have a balanced budget, and the Liberals can't balance it either. Obviously, they've expanded the deficit. The deficit is a good thing. What is not a good thing is having to borrow from overseas corporate banks to fill the gap. And that, you know, obviously we've got an interest bill of, I don't know, one or two billion a month going on, if not more. And that doesn't need to be there. We don't need a balanced budget. What we need is a budget that is is designed to create real sustainable economy with real production and real repair of our environment. We don't need a balanced budget at all. It's nonsense. Well, Dr. Liz Elliott, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economist as the sun sets and that hawk swoops down on possibly a unsuspecting mouse. Come on! Come on! Come on! Okay, we're recording this week's Renegade Economist radio show on the road. We're in Lismore with Kelvin Daly. Kelvin has a very exciting project underway and we're off uh, on a bit of a workshop today, Kelvin. What are we up to? Uh, we're heading to one of our um, local uh, biodynamic community members' farm to build an enormous biodynamically activated compost pile. So. Uh, we're, um, we're bringing some comfrey from our farm. So we harvested probably about 80 or 90 kilos of comfrey leaf and uh, also some taproot so he can propagate some more for himself. And um, yeah, we basically put the comfrey um, in layers like a lasagna through the, through the mix and it helps activate the compost, heat it up and, um, and turn beautiful carboniferous material into living humus soil so uh, yeah we're um, we're heading out to a place called Clavas which is just west of Lismore in Northern Rivers New South Wales where we live so uh, yeah it should be a good day can we hear it on my radio show oh Okay, we're now out west of Casino and standing in front of a, a, a truck, a, a, a ute pumping out water, watering down a giant pile of compost and we're here with Nadia who uh, is involved in the biodynamics movement in Mullumbimby. So Nadia, what are we doing here? Uh, we're doing a hot compost pile, a biodynamic hot compost pile using a um, cow manure and horse manure as a the nitrogen layer and we're using straw and tea tree mulch as the carbon layer. We also are adding a basalt like a cracker dust as a mineral content and we are adding a few sprinkles of um, uh, eggshell also as a mineral because high in calcium. Could add much more but all that we had was a few bucket, buckets. We also are watering each layer that we are doing, so with the straw and the tea tree and the, and the cow manure. And we are, we are also add a little bit of confray. You know, confray is a herb that when you add confray to a compost pile, it aids on the process of breaking down organic matter. We don't have a lot of confray, but we sprinkle what you have between the layers. 
Let's go walking away from this pump for a second and uh, tell us a little bit about the the benefits of biodynamics and how that can assist the productivity of land. Uh, what is unique about biodynamics? Um, my understanding on the compost, on a compost pile, you add uh, six preparation. So one is um, the arrow. It's a preparation made from the arrow plant. Another preparation made from chamomile plant. Another preparation made from steenettle plant the back of the oak tree, dandelion and valerian. Each one of these preparations go to a particular process that's quite complex to, to explain now. We need a half an hour to sit down to go through it. But you only add one gram of each one of these preparations on a bowl of compost that's a cow pet peat compost. That's a compost done in a particular way. Uh, and that seven uh, six preparation of each one of these plants uh, will cover 24 um, cubic meters of compost. That's what we are, uh, are doing today. Uh, this preparation, this six preparation that I told you, organize the forces on the compost. Like, you know, you have the planets up uh, around Mother Earth organizing the forces on the cosmic, this preparation organized the forces on the compost. So each particular one will have a role to play in the compost. For example, this tin nettle is related to the planet Mars, and planet Mars is very high in iron, so that will organize the ability of the plants that are going to grow in this compost when it spreads on this market garden that rice is doing, to absorb iron from the, from the soil. Uh, other things who have a, a, a strength to, to calcium. The valerian, for example, is, for example, is the only one that you don't put the valerian come as a tea. And the valerian you stir for 20 minutes in a vortex and you cover, you put in the end of your compost pile. And the valerian, valerian bring warm to the compost, bring heat. Um, same, you know, Valeria is the same plant that's using for depression because it will bring warm to your heart. Wow, that's quite a story. And uh, in terms of its effect on the land and the quality of soil, why is the, you know, how effective is biodynamics in terms of generating productive soils? Well, biodynamical works uh, with the rhythms of the moon. Uh, so, for example, just like a simple example, no? if you harvest uh, uh, letters in a full moon, it's going to last much shorter in a, in a shop than if you harvest away from 48 hours away from the full moon. Because full moon brings humidity, brings water to earth. So everything is pumping with water in a full moon, no? the sap of the tree, uh, the leaves of your letters, whatever. And this has been scientific measure. You can measure it. You can look at the ocean in a full moon and what happens to the tide. You sometimes, if the moon, it's in a, a 
perigee that's close to Earth. No, the moon moves in an elliptical shape, shape around the Earth, and sometimes the moon it's uh, apogee, far away from Earth. Sometimes perigee, close to Earth. The close to Earth, the full moon, that's when you see fungi everywhere. So the biodynamic pay attention to these readments and that all the preparations and for example there's one preparation that we use that's 500 that's fresh common urea placed inside a cow horn and gets placed under the earth for uh, autumn and uh, winter get lift in spring. So once you take the, this preparation out of the cow horn then you um, mix that for example each um, uh, 10 grams I think will cover about uh, 20 hectares you're going to mix it with with um, uh, with water in a vortex for one hour no stopping and you go one away and then you become really chaotic and turn it the other way and you go that for one hour then when you spread it over the land each drop of that will carry very high levels of microorganisms. So it's like instead of spread tons of compost, you just spread 500 and it has been proved by, uh, scientifically. There's research that measure, and by doing that over and over and over, you build up your topsoil. You build up the, and even there is um, uh, examples where the topsoil has the the topsoil is go into the subsoil. So you increase your your uh, your layer of topsoil in your land. You make it richer, more humans, more worms, uh, yeah, more life. Basically, that's what biodynamic is. Biodynamic, the dynamic of life. Well, Nadia, thanks so much for that short summary of this very interesting uh, application to our land to uh, make it more productive and hopefully uh, more farmers able to share the bounty. You are welcome.